what I like to do first uh, is uh, first answer. I had two questions. The two question is, is it ever okay to respond to your thought, be it a desire to scratch your nose or to head to the bathroom, I presume, while you are sitting asking, what is this? So I would say, if you need to head to the bathroom, please do so. I think that's kind of like, you know, basic human need. But the desire to scratch your nose, that possibly is an interesting one, especially nowadays with the coronavirus. And we kind of, uh, we don't really, I mean, like I just did this to my nose. And then, you know, nowadays we really ask, you know, don't touch your face, don't touch your face. And actually we realize by being asked not to touch our face that constantly we have a tendency to touch it because we have a little each here, a little each there. And that is actually very connected uh, to what I'm going to talk about shortly, is the fact that if there is a sensation, if there is a sound, especially a sensation, especially on the face, especially at the moment, can we just wait? Can we just wait? And I find it so interesting when there is a sensation, in a way you say, what is it? And then you go inside the sensation and then you notice how long is it going to last? And it's interesting when the sensation is here, it's kind of feels so intense that, you know, we must scratch it, touch it immediately. But it's interesting, like I have this little kind of itchy at the corner of the nose on the side. And so there is the, ah, because I have a sensation, I need to do something about it. But if we don't do anything, how long does it last? Generally, it generally passes, of course, if the thing continues, you have to creatively engage with it in a different way. And so, in a way to, to just, if the thing continues, you have to do something about it. But if the thing kind of is just there and you stay with it and just experiencing it's going, I think can be very useful. Then the other question was, could I ask what is, instead of what is this? And so is it okay or is it too abstract? I would say, yeah, you can ask what is. You can have different formulation of the question as long as it doesn't lead to proliferation and things like that. If it leads to the same opening, to the same sensation of questioning, then kind of uh, leave it. But if, so if it brings this kind of really, this sensation of questioning, stay with it. If it leads to proliferation, then yes, uh, maybe it leads to too much abstraction. So that was for the question. Then here, uh, there is an interesting question, and that's why I'm kind of um, just briefly looking at it, because I'm not going to answer the question now, but that one I think is important. Uh, my question is quite personal, it's tinnitus, and it's getting worse and stronger since the lockdown started. What should I do with what is this? 
should I avoid to question the tinnitus? Yes, yes. When uh, you kind of have tinnitus, uh, unless you find it useful to mindfully be aware of the tinnitus, some people find that useful. Most of the time, I would say, take the focus away from the tinnitus. Especially, I would say, do not do listening meditation in a silent place. And so, in a way, either do the what is this, or in a way, I would nearly say, do body scanning or do loving kindness meditation, something which will occupy you enough that it will be a little bit stronger than the tinnitus. So that's what I would recommend, especially if it's very silent. Then I would not say, what is a tinnitus? No, I would really not do that. I would take the focus away from it. And then somebody was saying, if there is a really big mosquito, then again, if it's a big mosquito and it's a dangerous one, Possibly, if you are at home, you could, like us, take a cup and a postcard and put it outside. Up to you to decide what to do with big mosquitoes. Okay, so now let's look at what I want to look at today and actually to see that the questioning. Yesterday I was talking about making the connection with compassion, with wisdom and the questioning. So really to see that the questioning is within a framework. And within that framework, there is, of course, ethics, which I'll talk more about tomorrow, and there is also wisdom. And when we mean by wisdom, we mean experiential wisdom. So that the questioning, in the same way as any other type of Buddhist meditation, is going to help us to develop experiential wisdom, and in the same way, the questioning is going to help us to do that. And that's what actually what I experienced myself. Like when I was in Korea for 10 years, I was just asking, what is this? What is this? You know, six months of the year, 10 hours a day, that's what the practice is there. And so what happened is by asking the questioning, then actually through the questioning, I become more aware of the three characteristics of impermanence, of unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and also not-self, emptiness, interdependence. And to me, that's what was kind of so interesting with the practice of the questioning, is that actually by asking the question, by focusing, by brightening, then actually we are more in touch with experience itself. Because a lot of the time we are more in the commenting than in the experiencing. And so in a way the questioning is really trying to bring us to what is this experience right now? What is it? And in a way, I think the first thing we discover, we experience is what the Buddha also discovered and experienced, which is impermanence, which is change. And you could say that there are two two changes. You have ultimate change, death. And at the moment, we're very much confronted by that. That actually so many people dying, we're hearing of so many deaths at the moment. And in a way, when we we have our own death, and we have the death of others, and myself, I saw my father die, I saw his last breath. And actually before that, 
I look at impermanence in a very superficial way. And, you know, somebody broke a vase, oh, everything is impermanence, who cares? But when I saw my, the last breath of my father, then arose this deep experience of, yeah, life is impermanent. Life rests upon a single breath, as my teacher used to say. And at the same time arose this compassion, this compassion for everybody whose life rests upon a single breath. And so that totally changed, actually, for example, my relationship to my mother. Instead of meeting my mother with all my history I had with her, then after that, I was meeting her in that moment, that person, in that moment, whose life rests upon a single breath. And that totally changed, actually, my relationship with her and with many other people to kind of really be aware of the fragility of life. Then the other aspect of impermanence is actually the beauty of your impermanence, the gift of change, the potential for change. Because there is one word we need, I kind of try to be careful about, but it's, we use it so much. Always, never. I always do this. You never change. You will always be like this. This is interesting, this kind of idea that, you know, we start, of course, we repeat certain things, but we do not do it all the time to the same degree. And so for me, this is really actually uh, an act of compassion. That when we see ourselves, when we see others, we have this deep experience of knowing that at some point, they can change. At some point, I can change. And that I think is really important. Can everybody hear me uh, well? Or should I put my thing a little higher? So is it, is it better this way? It's fine? Okay, so I'll continue. So in a way, uh, what do I mean by potential for change? So find that often we feel stuck. Like, you know, I am like this, I repeat the same mistake, or they repeat the same mistake, or they cause harm again and again and again. And in a way to realize, no, I don't do the same thing all the time, even if I repeat it time to time. And to me, this is one of the beauty of the question, that when we ask the question, it really helps us to develop flexibility and it really helps us to, uh, to be more multi-choice, to see more possibility, to, you know, to be more in tune with the potential for change. And that in a way we can bring what I would say my late motive. What is the least I can do to change something here? Because if we think what is the most, generally it's very hard. But the least we can do that. Then another aspect is what is called dukkha. And here it means unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, or suffering, like pain. 
And so in a way, I would say at the moment with the coronavirus, I mean, this is it. We're really in it. We're really into unreliability. All our plans totally change. And we don't know one day to the next what's going to happen next with this. And so in a way, it's very interesting to be in such a situation as a coronavirus because it's really make us be in touch. I mean, I don't wish it on anybody and I wish, of course, for the planet that it was not there. But the fact that it's there, it really shows unreliability. And how can we creatively engage with unreliability? Then the Buddha was pointing at unsatisfactoriness. You know, it's not saying that we cannot have pleasant experience, but he's saying it cannot last. And it cannot last because of impermanence. And so nowadays, I think a lot of us are a bit in an unsatisfactory state or unsatisfied state some of us sometimes, like, oh, I was supposed to be on holiday in Japan or I was supposed to be working here. I was supposed to do this and not happening. So it's kind of like you're feeling something is missing. And instead, can we creatively engage with that? Can, okay, yeah. Now, yeah, I can have a... The fact that things are difficult doesn't mean I cannot also have satisfaction, I cannot have contentment, I cannot have pleasant feeling told. But generally, it doesn't last because of impermanence. And again, the last of that one is suffering, dukkha dukkha. And I think in a way, with dukkha dukkha, it's really kind of to see when we're in pain and where others are in pain. And I think this is very much what we also kind of confronted with the coronavirus, is how in this situation, each person is actually alone. That actually, when I am in pain, nobody can experience my pain for me. And at the same time, it's painful. So not only I am alone in it, but it's also painful. And so I think if we really understand that, we cannot but have compassion for ourselves, who feels alone and who experiences pain, and for the other person who feels alone and experiences pain. And so I think in a way, I think that's what very much the coronavirus actually has shown people actually confronting this suffering for themselves or others and really bringing to that situation creative, wise compassion. And I think all around us, we can see that and we can also see that very likely within us at this time. And then the last characteristic is not-self, anatta, emptiness, interdependence. And so what that means, and to me this is again very connected to compassion, what that means is not that we don't exist. It's not that if we sit long enough, we're going to disappear in a puff of smoke. But it means we are a flow of condition. We are a flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. And at the moment we're meeting a lot or really quite different condition. And that's what is so strange, because for some people, the conditions are not very different. 
And for others, they are so painful. They are so much suffering. And so it's kind of like you are in this kind of, all of us have this flow of inner condition and outer condition, and all our conditions are going to be a little different. And so in a way, creatively engaging with that. But also in terms of the conditionality, what we actually, I think, what is beautiful at the moment, and I hope it would have a real change on society, though I am not sure about that, is the fact that we realize how our survival depend on so many other things. So generally, when we look at our survival, we think our own survival, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the air we breathe. And of course, that is produced by other people. But at the moment, we're realizing this even more, because generally, we really take this for granted. And so we wear clothes, we eat food, and we think, who cares? You know, I throw this one, I throw that one. And I think the coronavirus is kind of actually showing us who is really essential for us to continue to survive, to live. The people who collect the rubbish, the people who farm, the people who are in the shop, the doctors, etc., etc. So all these people we depend on, and we are at the forefront of actually what could be a great danger. And so in a way, realizing through the questioning, I think the questioning really helps us to see what is it? And actually through the questioning, what is it seeing? You could nearly see the endless chain of depending on others of being supported by others. And also all the resources, of course, in terms of ecology, that helps us to survive. So in a way, to me, the asking the question, what is this, is really a way to really make arise this creative, wise compassion. And so in a way to kind of, when we practice not only we cultivate it, but we actually help it to manifest. I think just by coming back to the question, just by asking the question, actually there is more possibility that this will manifest because we're not so stuck in, a way, in our self-centeredness, in our grasping. And to remember that in a way the wise compassion kind of like this wise compassion, and that's why I think it's very important when we practice this creative wise compassion, engaging with what is around us, then what we're developing within ourselves is really what we were, Master Kuzan taught my teacher so much about, what we call song song jokto, brightness, brightness, calmness, calmness. And so I would like to finish with two quotes, which I'm going to actually put in the chat. So I'm putting the first one, and then I'll put the next one. So, first one. If one remains in deep calm without being aware, 
it means sinking into dullness. If, oh, did I put it in or not? Possibly not. Here we go. Here we are, sorry. So if one remains in deep calm without being aware, it means sinking into dullness. If one remains aware without being calm, it means becoming entangled in one's thought. If one is in state of being neither calm nor aware, then one is not only entangled in one's thoughts, but also submerged by dullness. And this is really talking about how, how it is, in a way, to sit, stand, or lie down in meditation. And actually, what really this practice of questioning is trying to do is to balance the two quality when we see it of calmness and brightness. And so if one is actually too focused on focusing, then one might remain in deep calm, but without being aware. And then we might sink into dullness. So something we sometimes have to be careful, especially if we focus on the breath, that oh, it's kind of like we become so calm. It's like, oh, there is a little kind of energy which is not there. And then bringing the question could be very helpful then. But then, if one remains aware without being calm, it means becoming entangled in one's thought. And so that's what we're being careful. Like if we ask a question and there is not enough calm, then suddenly we might actually become agitated by the question. And then possibly, it might be good to come back to the breath, to calm again. And then sometimes we might be in this state. If one is in a state of being neither calm nor aware, then one is not only entangled in one's thought, but also submerged by dullness. So in a way, this is sometimes what happens. We kind of sitting in meditation and whoop, either we're feeling a little sleepy or either we kind of have lots of thought or little of both. And this is unavoidable. I think it's part of the condition that sometimes we sit and we'll be really bright and clear and it will really go on its own. And then sometimes we sit and it's, oh. And so, of course, if you sit and you feel sleepy, you can always straighten the back, you can open the eyes, or you can just be with it and wait for it to pass. Because sometimes, like all things, the dullness will also pass. And then the thought is a little the same. You have the thought and you say, oh, I have always thought. That's what's going on now. So, of course, you could come back to the question, what is this? Or you can come back to the breath, or you can come back to the sound. But at the same time, You can also just be with the thought. Right now, there are lots of thoughts. And you can just, in a way, let them exist. And time to time, back to the breath, back to the question, back to the sound. So in a way, kind of playing with these different elements. Then there is the other quote, which I will put here. And this time I will not forget to put it. So here, clear awareness and deep calm are beneficial. 
a clear awareness will danger will not work. Deep calm and clear awareness are appropriate. But deep calm with absent-mindedness is not helpful. How can any delusions arise if calm does not let in any distractions and awareness does not leave any room for unskillful thinking? So here, it kind of actually really showing how the two elements of focusing, concentrating, coming back to the object, and looking deeply, inquiry, how the two come together. So clear awareness and deep calm are beneficial. So really what we try to do when we practice meditation, is develop together calmness and brightness. Sometimes we might find ourselves sinking a little bit because actually there might be too much calm. And sometimes, we might have this deep calm, but it's really kind of vague and confused. And then he's saying that if we really have this grounded calm, and we might find ourselves sometimes, we sit in meditation, there is this calm, but which is also bright, so that any thought that arises doesn't have any place to stick. That is interesting with thought. You know, you sit there and there is a thought and it doesn't stick. And then sometimes you sit there and there is a thought and it's like, oh, this is me. And then, ooh, and then off we go with the thought and we overwhelm with the thought. And so this is kind of interesting to look at these two elements of calmness and brightness and to see that when we cultivate the questioning, what is this? We really, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to cultivate equally calmness and brightness. And then, of course, sometimes it really happens by itself. Like somebody was pointing out yesterday, like you sit there by itself, you're quiet and clear, and you have nothing to do. And then sometimes it's kind of you're nearly like there is too much calm and you need to be, bring a bit brightness. And then sometimes it's like the brightness become a little agitated and then you need to bring a little calm. So in a way, what I think these uh, two quotes helps us to see is that we are our own teacher. Nobody, we can give suggestion, but in terms of the practice, it's for us to see. It doesn't mean that every minute we are engineering am i calm enough am i bright enough but it's more so it's not to check something but possibly to make us more aware of these two complementary dimension of the practice the calmness and the brightness so that's what i wanted to say today and to suggest and to point out and then now what I would uh, like to suggest is we can just stand for a few seconds just to uh, stretch a little and then we can uh, sit in meditation. And somebody is asking, who are the quotes from? Actually, the quotes come from a text on Korean Zen uh, that uh, if anybody is interested, I could send you uh, the little manuscript that I have. But we'll talk about it at the end.
So let's stretch just a little bit before we sit for 30 minutes. So stretching a little. So, if we can find a comfortable posture, that it be sitting, lying down, standing, whatever suits us. And maybe during this next uh, 25 minutes, so of course, if the questioning suits us, we can ask, what is it? Otherwise, of course, we can be aware of the breath. We can listen to sound. Whatever is our focus, we can also possibly notice the degree of calmness, the degree of brightness. And how we can creatively engage with those elements of practice.
to thank you for your practice and then we can stand for just a few seconds to stretch a little bit, move a bit the shoulder and then we'll start with the comments and the question in the chat on the side. So the first question, who are the quotes from? And actually the quotes are in a text, which are kind of uh, a text on the basis of uh, Korean song practice, uh, which I helped out with the editing, and then I made like a shortcut version of it. And so yeah, if everybody uh, was interested, they can just email me through my website and I, I can send them uh, that text. And the quote from, I think, I would have to check. I can't remember who the quotes are from. Would your comment on managing tinnitus also apply to dealing with thinking that has an obsessional quality? I think that when we, we meditate, uh, we can notice actually that there are nearly like three types of thinking. I would say there is like a light thinking, which we can combat very easily from and kind of like one second you're thinking of something one second you are with the question so it's kind of like very light then you have kind of like some of thought which are a little kind of uh, automatic a little habitual like daydreaming or ruminating or fantasizing or planning or judging and then you have the thought which i call the intense thought where ah it's kind of like something happened or generally we have intense thought because something happened and then it's a shock to the system and then we cannot stop thinking about it. And so there I think is just to kind of not so much go into it because you're thinking so much about it already, but just try to for a few seconds come back to the breath, come back to the question, do body scanning or loving kindness or listening to sound, whatever works for you. And then, of course, you'll come back to the thought. But then again, you create a little gap within it. So when the thoughts are intense, the main point is not to amplify them. And we can do that by time to time creating a little space through coming back to the focus while accepting that they'll be there. And also, if we don't amplify it over, the, over time, they will disappear after a day or two or a few hours. So yes. A little bit like the tinnitus, because it's so there, generally, it can be useful to take the focus away. That's one of the methods uh, the Buddha suggested in one text. Okay. I wanted to ask what to do with realization that feels important, not being entangled in unwanted thought, but more like insight. Should this be ignored or written to the question? No, no, that's what I. This, when we sit in meditation, actually, because we sit in meditation, we're focusing, we're questioning, actually, because we loosen the automatic habitual thought and a space is created in which insightful thought, what I call creative meditative thinking, can arise. And then what you can notice is that you sit there and then you see something more clearly. You can really see something. And so you stay with it, you explore it, and then at some point, actually, I would say the clarity of it goes in some ways, and then you're more like in the repeating of it or the remembering of it. 
And I would say, if it's an important one, later on, you will remember it. Or you will just kind of organically, it will have impacted you. So kind of noticing that, yes, when you have an insight, when you see something clearly, yes, of course, be with it. And then notice at which point a certain kind of brightness, clarity disappear. And then one goes more in the repetition. And then one can leave it aside. But yeah, yeah, no, no, this is important moment in meditation, of course. Okay. What is the reason for meditating with our eyes closed? So, personally, when I meditate, uh, some style, I don't have my eyes closed, but just half closed. So there is a little light in so that I can be still quite bright because there is this idea of cultivating brightness. So you're not kind of wide. I mean, in the Dzogchen tradition, you have the eyes wide open. In the Song tradition, you have the eyes half open and gazing very gently in front of you. And then more like in the Theravada tradition, then you have the eyes closed. And it's basically what is best for you. Because for some people, closing the eyes can be helpful. Others, opening the eyes a little helpful and wide open in certain circumstances can be very helpful. So it's kind of, again, what suits you, what suits your eyes, and, but you don't want to scrunch them, and if they're a little open, you don't want to fix anything. You really want to gaze very gently. And uh, I'm sure uh, generally the tradition we say to close the eyes is so that you have less uh, thing going on. And the song people say, oh, close your eyes, you have to have some brightness. So each has its little kind of thing that they prefer, but basically what works for you, I would say. Being deep in the Zen practice with what is is, I have realized some quality like self-starting of the questioning during the daily activity. Sometimes my life thought before falling asleep or the very first one in the early morning. It's my anchor to come back to. It makes me see the sensation of life brighter and st more stable. And I feel the question coming from within the body. But how to get through to the unknowing and the big doubt? So this, uh, this is in the Zen tradition. They have uh, this idea that in a way you kind of, you develop this big doubt and at some point the big doubt explodes. And I think uh, the difficulty with the image that, you know, kind of like the big doubt explodes is that we feel that it's going to be like a shattering kind of like storm kind of wow thing like this. When personally I think the big doubt kind of like opening or the annoying opening is more like a deep grasping. So it could be something simple like not grasping at something or just looking at something very differently. So we have to be careful that in the song tradition you have lots of this very strong image but it does, why not mean that is what we experience? And I would say that is more about kind of moment of the grasping. I find it kind of more useful way uh, to look at it. After meditation, I have a blurred vision. What's your opinion? So that's, you have to be careful with that. Because the thing to do is not to scrunch the eyes. And if you have the eyes half open, you really don't want to fix anything. 
because then really you're going to get the blurred vision. So you want to have kind of that you've closed the eyes or little open eyes, you really don't want to strain the eyes. So very kind of gazing. And at the same time, as we sit, and in some way we kind of like, we change the condition. So at the beginning, yes, you know, you can have a little kind of uh, the vision is not sometimes so uh, defined because in a way that's not what we're working on, defining things. So, but as long as it passes quickly, then it's fine. Otherwise, I would uh, kind of check a little bit not to put any tension or not to fix anything. I come from a secular mindfulness background. I'm getting a lot from your talk and using the question. Thank you. Uh, Naomi, I had an itchy nose. So instead of really being hit by scratching, I work with it creatively by imagining with a bit of fluff or a fairy dancing on my nose. Why not? That's really going creative. Why not? Thank you, Naomi. John. Uh, suggest your guidance on walking practice, please, for example, pace duration. Okay, uh, generally with the song practice, you would just walk at an ordinary pace on a certain distance. So like if you have a room, you would go all around the room at an ordinary pace. But of course, if you have a garden, again, you can go at an ordinary pace on a certain distance. If you have a very small space, then I think we might go more for what I call slow walking. So that, you know, you walk back and forth slowly, or you go walk around the room slowly. So I think the smaller the space, then the slower, slower you have to go. And if you have in a big space, then you can go, I would say generally at a good pace, but of course, if that suits you. Uh, once I was in this temple in Taiwan and they had two circles. One was walking fast and one was walking very fast. So it's really what you do. To walk slowly works better for some people. To walk at an ordinary pace works better for others. But if you walk at an ordinary pace, you want uh, more length. Kind of it's a little longer. And, but I mean, when I was with the Taiwanese nun, we were walking faster. Actually, they did not have that big a space. They just walk around the altar, you know, for 20 minutes. So very energetic. So again, what suits you, what suits your body, what suits your circumstances? Today, I found the question persecuting, and I came to repeat to myself, it is what it is, which calmed which calm me down. Is this linked with what you said earlier? that we need to teach ourselves about the balance between calmness and brightness. Yes, definitely. Because you see, we have different energy. Sometimes we come and we're like, mm, buzzy. You know, and you add the question to that, and it's kind of like, it goes in kind of, a, the energy is not so calming. And so then, ah, in which way can I bring calm here? And sometimes in a way we're too calm, and then we need to bring more energy, exactly. Yes, exactly. Hi, Martin. Sometimes, very often, following yours or Stephen's talk, I feel a great buzzing brightness in my stomach after asking the question. It's a great feeling. I turn my awareness to the feeling, and in this state, thoughts come and go with ease. One thought often sticks, which is wondering if I am holding too hard. As this thought grows louder, the feeling dissipates. I think like a baby holding too hard. Exactly. 
exactly you see uh, sometimes uh, we practice and then or we hear a talk and ah it's kind of like we connecting with something and then because actually it's quite a good feeling it's quite kind of a pleasant feeling and that's kind of what is a little tricky with a pleasant feeling tone is how do we not get excited about it and then it's like we grasp at it and then it disappears and so in a way i think part of the practice is when we experience what i would call this quiet and clear state to really can i just be with it not do anything with it but just be with it very gentle just experiencing it fully just being with it not doing anything with it but sometimes we think i need to deepen it and then it disappears just being with it and then it will last as long as it lasts i am noticing that i experience breathing as a narrow focus and the question as a wide focus do you have any comment on that yes i think in a way when we look at focusing or what we could call concentration it's kind of really like there is a spectrum we can either go on something which is very specific very precise and i would say the breath generally is a little more precise generally we are with a sensation in the nose sometime or we can be kind of aware of the sensation of the breath in the belly a little more precise or we can be aware of the whole of the breath and then it's going to be more open if we can be aware of the whole of the breath and wait for the breath to happen but often we kind of focus on one place where we can really feel the breath and so the the focus is going to be more like on the specific kind of narrower side and then listening meditation and questioning meditation of course will be more open and then again with the sound you can be just aware i'll talk about this tomorrow of the whole sound or just one specific sound so you can have more openness or more precision same with the question you can what is this and then you really just with the openness of it or we can be what is this and it's kind of like there is a little more kind of precision to it but generally with the if the question is open ended then yes you have lots of openness but if you use the question what is this in terms of a thought or a sensation then again you have more precision so it's what works what is useful at any given moment to be more precise or to be more open is it generally more helpful to have one longer sit or several shorter sit in a day can it be counterproductive to sit for too long and this is really i would say uh, a body actually a body question uh, because some people can sit for a long time and it's quite comfortable and some people sitting long time can be a little difficult uh, so that's one thing you really must do according to the body what what you what your body can take in terms of sitting still in a certain posture and how is your back and everything and then there is a thing where for some people they really have to sit a long time because for the first 20 minute they're really a little kind of vague and confused and then after 20 minute oh it's a trap and so those people will need in a way feel the need to sit longer because the calming comes in the middle of it uh steven is more like that me i sit and oh i am there so generally 
but I cannot sustain, I mean, I can sustain it if I need to, but generally I would prefer to sit for 30 minutes at a time because then I can really have enough energy to do that. And then I can feel, oops, kind of sometimes, and sometimes it kind of build up by itself and then you can sit a long time. But if it's kind of ordinary condition and everything, then I can feel, oh, the energy is kind of like going a little bit. So again, it's what suits us. Are we somebody who need to, to sit for a longer period of time or for a shorter period of time? So it's really what works for you. So if you're not the long type, then yes, sitting too long can be counterproductive because actually it can lead nearly to more agitation. But then somebody who likes long sit, to sit shortly, that can lead to a little bit of uh, agitation and not be so satisfactory. So really, this is according to our temperament and conditions. So I'm uh, finding with the question, it is making me much more aware of the astonishment and wonder of being here, breath by breath. But I fear it may prevent, prohibit the potential of living life to the maximum because of the inherent risk we are exposed to in daily life. I think we have to see that the astonishment, the being present power, is in a kind of a multi-perspective. That is not just about being astonished for the sake of being astonished. I think there is time for really taking the time and just, wow, kind of, you know, being in the world, seeing the conditionality of the world, seeing the beauty of the world. But there is all the time where actually we are more in the action, we are more in the relationship. So, and also the wisdom, the wisdom of seeing kind of like when we talk about compassion, at time you need to have more compassion for yourself, at time more compassion for others, at time between the two people, kind of a little kind of balance. So I think, again, to, to be careful with that. Kind of, it's not just about being astonished all the time, but some of the time we can enjoy it. And I think we can be also astonished in a very calm, quiet, content way. The, just the, not so much astonished as the preciousness of the moment. What can I do in this moment, which is wise and compassionate? Can we also see that? kind of the preciousness of the moment as much as we can. Find the question so sharp that the effect of it comes in powerful way rather than a consistent calm awareness. Uh, would you have a tip to how to hold the question more sustainably? Yes, some people have that effect that, you know, kind of the question seems to have like, like a, not a shaking element, but what is this? What is this? It's kind of like waking up the whole thing. That's why the brightness is so important. Uh, I mean, this practice is very much about brightness. But the brightness, as I pointed out with the quotes, is really embedded in some calmness. So it's kind of really for each of us to really find that balance. Because I remember when I started, I was, what is it? What is it? What is it? And I was like, kind of like the whole body shaking with it. And I thought, oh, calm down, calm down, just, you know. Can you have a questioning which is balanced and stable and calm at the same time? And I think that's what we learn to do. That's what we learn to practice. 
Peter, you mentioned about trying to answer questions from the lower part of the body. So here is to be careful and not do what I did at the beginning. And we can ask a question with a, what is it? What is it? What is it? And it really may be very tense. And then slowly, slowly, I learned to bring more the question in the lower part of the belly. It's kind of just kind of like, at the beginning, it's kind of really bringing our attention to the belly. Really kind of the seat, we are sitting here. And so kind of not so much thinking, we, of course we ask the question with the head, but bodily to really try to be kind of uh, grounded in our belly. I think that, of course, as long as you don't have belly problem or stomach problem, and just kind of be within the groundedness of the belly. And then from there, asking the question, I think that's what uh, we mean. If it makes sense to you, of course, it doesn't make sense for everybody. Uh, a lot of difficult stuff coming up, all the scene of my life, how I ever had others, plus all of my personal failure. So I practice metta and this is very helpful. And I wonder if you can say something about this, yes. To see that all the practice can be very helpful at different times. And so you have this practice of metta, which is loving kindness, wishing well for ourselves. And that wishing well for ourselves is really because we can have a tendency to judge ourselves, to be kind of a really difficult on ourselves. And the thing, what, when we think about the past, for me, what is very important is to have this compassionate wisdom that in the past, I did what I did because that was the best thing I could do then. Because in a way, I did not know better, or I did not know this, or I was not prepared for that, or I had that other condition. I mean, we might not do this now, but because our condition changed. So I think we need to have a lot of compassion for our past harm that we might have caused, or past failure, if indeed it was failure, because very likely we learned something within it. And we, to some degree, try to creatively engage with it. So in a way, when we see that kind of like to be careful that often it's kind of like we feel some difficulty and then it's kind of everything gets kind of associated. And so in a way at this difficult time, I think in this coronavirus time, because often we feel unpleasant feeling from for different reasons, ah, then it can be associated with the past. And in a way, can we leave the past where it is? In a way, then we did the best we can. And then we hopefully will have learned from it. And nowadays we try not to repeat the same thing or to understand what would make us to cause harm to someone or maybe to not succeed at something. But then there is a question of what it means to succeed. Uh, today I felt a calm, bright appreciation of existence and the question returned one to this limiting proliferation comment. I have some cultural baggage which want things to be difficult and require effort. So maybe I should just appreciate this moment of ease. Yes, yes. You know, sometimes we associate practice where it must, especially some practice, it must be hard. And that. When it is easeful, just enjoy it. Because at other time, 
It could be difficult. We could be sleepy, we could be agitated or whatever it is. And so when there is ease, just be with the ease. Just be with that. You know, we kind of just feel it. And also it makes us feel ourselves in a different way. So sometimes we have some pain, we have some difficulty, and we can find some ease just to experience ourselves in an easeful manner. I think it can be so enriching. Uh, wondering if using our imagination to help create a sense of calm focus is a useful tool or delusion. For example, this week when eating, I have been imagining myself in a dining hall at Gaia House, and this has really helped my focus. But then when I ask the question, what is this, poof, it disappears. Is using imagination in this way useful? Yeah. I think imagination is a creative function. There is a very difference between daydreaming and being kind of somewhere else and kind of, you know, from far from what we're doing here in an imagined kind of situation to, in a way, helping that associative feeling with Gaia House, which when we are Gaia House, and then we kind of just having that calm feeling, then just, yes, that kind of imagination is kind of connected to a quality which is connected to Gaia House. And I think, yes, that then can be very helpful. When I start questioning what is this during meditation, once I have reached a stable mindset so that I feel uncomfortable and I have to ground myself regularly. This can occur multiple times throughout the meditation. And you see, if you not choose to uh, do the questioning meditation, it can feel a little kind of like something different. So personally, I think if you used to do something which is very stabilizing, then instead of doing what is this all the time, I would just do what you do, which is stabilizing. And then within that, time to time, drop the what is this. So that it's not like you feel, what is this? What is this? And you have kind of, because often when we try to ask a question, there is kind of be a little uh, tension kind of coming in. So how can you be in that stable mindset? And there's, there's still a little brightness. And the brightness can come through the question or the brightness could come through just being aware of change. So, you know, we try not to force it and see kind of, uh, is it there all the time? That's one of the things I would say. Uh, does it have this effect all the time or does it depend? So exploring it a little bit. You mentioned about trying to answer questions from the lower part of the body. I often find that my head is a reference point for bodily sensation and thought. I almost always feel that my head is a location from which I am meditation. Occasionally, this is less solid. I feel like this location is attached to my sense of self. Do you have any advice for how to work with this sense of location? With the tendency to be in this location behind the head, naturally soften and release with continued practice. I would say so, but again, we all feel a little differently. So who knows, you might have a kind of a strong impression of your head. I think we also have to uh, take into account that we can be different. But I feel for myself that when I started to meditate, 
I would really locate the question in the head. I could really, really feel the tension. That's why they say, don't do that because it can you know, sometimes give you a day. So kind of trying to not have any tension in the head, first thing. And secondly, see if you kind of, you know, bring your attention possibly to your hands, to your belly, to your seat, just kind of feeling very aware of this part of the body. And then see if from there you can ask a question. But if you continue to have this feeling of kind of just the head being there, as long as it doesn't disturb you, that's fine too. I think we all have a different sensitivity. So I almost, I also mostly have this feeling of meditating from the head behind the eyes and on the surface of my skin on my face. I have to work harder to focus on location be, being lower in my body. Again, this is for you to see. As long, I mean, you could have, for whatever reason, a strong sense of your face and your head. I mean, we different. You could experiment. In a way, you could experiment. What if I try to feel my feet? What if I try to feel my hand? Can in a way the location change? Or if it feels too tense to change, then as long as it doesn't bring tension, don't worry about it. The thing is really what we're trying to do by saying, bring the questioning down, is that we don't bring tension in the head. So as long as there is no tension, it doesn't matter so much. But if you want to experiment with a different locus, and you can try the feet touching the ground, the hand touching each other, and also the seat touching uh, the cushion to see, can I bring a little bit the location down? The questioning is new to me. I am going very slowly with it. And I'm aware I could tend to go into thought in response to the question. How can I help myself not to just go into thought in response to the question? Do you know this is very normal? Uh, some people, when they ask the question up, generally it triggers thought. So don't worry so much about it. If you used to do another practice, like just sitting or loving kindness or being aware of the breath or being aware of sound, just do that. And then time to time, it's like popping the question within the meditation, a bit like kind of throwing a pebble into the pond. So think about it a little bit more like that. I think, yes, I think it's a good idea to go slowly, especially if you find that when you, have, you question, you have more thought. Because otherwise, it's the same. Like if you try to focus on the breath, on the sound, or on the question, all of us are distracted by this or that. So that's kind of natural. But it's just if questioning seems to bring more thought than to kind of just time to time bring it in. Uh, and then there is just uh, a question. Uh, this is like more like a French question. And it is in French, qu'est-ce que c'est? In French, it's qu'est-ce que c'est? Uh, on pourrait aussi faire qu'est-ce? So we want, uh, you want to really, whatever wording you use, that it be in Italian, French, 
Russian or whatever Georgian language, uh, you really want to keep it uh, short and not too complicated. So I would say, qu'est-ce que c'est? Yeah, I would say, qu'est-ce que c'est? Qu'est-ce que c'est ceci? You could do that too. It gets a little kind of, you know, complicated. See what works for you. If qu'est-ce que c'est ceci? Well, that works, do that. If qu'est-ce que c'est is good enough, then do that because it's a little shorter. So thank you very much for uh, being together. Uh, we started a little kind of uh, strangely, but I'm glad we were able to connect. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.